the more I read, the more I realized that it wasn't just looking back on this historical character and, oh, isn't that so interesting. This is a living, breathing person who was every bit as hip and, and strange and you know, radical and avant-garde at his time. Mm-hmm. All of them were, actually. I'm Rebecca Hoogs, the Interim Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. You're listening to Sal On Air, a collection of talks and readings from the world's best writers gathered over the past 34 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. In this event, recorded in March of 2010, former U.S. Poet Laureate Rita Dove shared poems from her new book, Sonata Mulatica. This collection tells the story of George Augustus Polgreen Bridgetower. Previously, just a footnote in Beethoven's biography, Bridgetower, who was a black violinist, had a sonata dedicated to him, and then, after falling out over a girl, found that same sonata renamed. In this groundbreaking book, Dove tells Bridgetower's story and restores one piece of lost history of African Americans in classical music. The son of a white woman and a, quote, African prince, Bridgetower travels to Vienna to meet bad boy genius Ludwig von Beethoven. As Dove describes it, the chemistry of Beethoven and Bridgetower had a dazzling quality, not unlike a romance of its own. Dove also illustrates the ups and downs of life as an 18th century musician, which is not so unlike the lives of many working artists today. Then, and now, Artists' lives are uncertain, exhilarating, and precariously dependent upon patrons for financial survival. Often the only artist of color in wealthy white spaces, Bridgetower's musical prowess, and in fact his life itself, faced erasure even as he lived and played. Without Dove to revive his story, Bridgetower may have been lost to time. Dove once noted, quote, There's always been a special place in my work for people who drop out of history. In this reading, she brings George Polgreen Bridgetower to life for an audience in whose minds he lives still. Let's rekindle his spirit once again and hear what Dove's writings in Bridgetower's life and music continue to tell us today. This is Sal On Air. Thank you. You are a sassy crowd. <laughs> it's wonderful to be here. I can feel the warmth, and I want to thank that remarkable young man who sang his song of himself tonight. That was beautiful, wasn't it? Thank you. Ah, I'm going to tell you a story tonight in poems about another remarkable young man, except that he lived, oh, many centuries ago, a couple centuries ago. And his name, as Rebecca told you, was George Augustus Paul Green Bridgetower. Now, why should we even care? He was a virtuoso, and in his day, he was really slated to become a great person, and then he dropped out of history. There were several other things that were remarkable about him. We wouldn't probably even know about him if were it not for the fact that Beethoven had composed a sonata for him. And as Rebecca mentioned, you heard some of those strains of the Kreutzer Sonata as you came in. It was dedicated to Bridge Tower, 
And uh, we don't know a lot about that girl. She must have been something for history to change courses so dramatically. But the one thing that was so incredible to me was the fact that he was, in fact, a mixed race boy. That his mother came from somewhere in what is now modern day Poland and his father built himself as an African prince. This is the major story. Yeah, he had a little sass in him as well. <laughs> so let me start with the very first poem, but I promise you I will not read every poem. We will be here for three days. Uh, I will just, I'm going to kind of leapfrog through his life. The Bridge Tower. If was at the beginning. If he had been older, if he hadn't been dark, brown eyes ablaze in that remarkable face, if he had not been so gifted, so young, a genius with no time to grow up, if he hadn't grown up, undistinguished to an obscure old age, if the piece had actually been, as Kreutzer exclaimed, unplayable, even after our man had played it and for years no one else was able to follow, so that the composer's fury would have raged for naught and wagging tongues could keep alive the original dedication from the title page he shredded. Oh, if only Ludwig had been better looking or cleaner or a real aristocrat, fawn instead of the unexceptional fawn from some Dutch farmer. If his ears had not already begun to squeal and whistle, if he hadn't drunk his wine from lead cups, if he could have found true love. Then the story would have held. In 1803, George Paul Green Bridgetower, son of Friedrich Augustus, the African prince, and Maria Anna Sovinki of Biala in Poland, traveled from London to Vienna, where he met the great master, who would stop work on his third symphony to write a sonata for his new friend to premiere triumphantly on May 24th, whereupon the composer himself leapt up from the piano to embrace his lunatic mulatto. Who knows what would have followed? They might have palled around some, just a couple of wild and crazy guys strutting the town like rock stars, hitting the bars for a few beers, a few laughs. Instead of falling out over a girl, nobody remembers, nobody knows. Then this bright-skinned papa's boy could have sailed his 15-minute fame straight into the record books, where instead of a Regina Carter or Aaron Dworkin or Boyd Tinsley sprinkled here and there, we would find rafts of black kids scratching out scales on their matchbox violins so that someday they might play the impossible. Beethoven's Sonata Number no. 9 in A Major Opus 47, also known as the Bridge Tower. I happen to uh, see that the symphony is actually playing Beethoven's fourth tonight, so it's a bit of serendipity there, a little bit of Beethoven below us and here as well. The first time we hear about Bridge Tower, if you dig through the dusty archives, is, is in the year um, 1789. 
He's nine years old, and his father has taken him on the road. He was discovered uh, to be a prodigy by Haydn, no less, who happened to be working on the same estate that young Bridgetower's father was a, he was, his father was a valet and, and Haydn was the, the music director of this Hungarian count's estate. And they discovered this boy had an ear for music. And so Haydn, it is rumored, gave him lessons. The father, who seemed to be pretty much of a, a charmer, he knew lots of languages and knew how to market himself, decided that, uh, like a, I guess sort of like a soccer mom, he decided to take this boy on the road and, you know, he's going to push him. And so he took him on the road to give concerts. And the first concert that we have note of is in 1789 in Paris, no less, which in 1789 was not exactly the place to be, if you think <laughs> back. Um, but they kind of scooted in right uh, you know, before the revolution and then scooted out again. He played in front of uh, an audience that was full of, of diplomats and dignitaries in France getting a little antsy about this revolution brewing. And in the audience, um, You'll notice a couple people in this audience that are at least one you might recognize. This poem is called, What Doesn't Happen. The notion that the carriage wheels clattering through Paris remind him of the drums from the islands in his father's tales. Click, clack, sputter, whir. He could make a song of it, dance this foreign hand down the cobbles of the Rue de Bac as he balances his small weight against the pricking cushions. Clack, sputter, whir. All the cadences jumble together except the thudding dirge of his heart. That he can see in curtain twilight, the violin case in his lap twitch with every jounce like an animal trapped under the hunter's eye. That he can sense down shrouded alleys danger rustling just as surely as he can feel spring's careless fingers feathering his chest and smell April's ferment in the stink of the poor marching toward him. Though none of this is true, he hears nothing but clatter. He can't see the rain-slicked arc of the bridge passing under him as the pale stone of the palace rears up and he climbs down to be whisked into the massive Salle de Machines, his father's cloak folded back like a bat's tucked wing. Because it was a dry spring that year on the continent. Nonetheless, he ignores his heart's thudding and steps out onto the flickering stage, deep and treacherous as a lake still frozen at sunset, aglow with reflected light. Soon the music will take him across. He'll feel each string's ecstasy thrum in his head and only then dare to open his eyes to gaze past the footlights at the rows of powdered curls. Let's see the toy bear jump his hoops, nodding, lorgnettes poise, not hearing, but judging. Except for that tall man on the aisle with hair the orange of fading leaves and the two girls beside him, one a younger composition of snow and embers, 
But the other, oh, the other dark, dark yet warm as the violin's nut-brown sheen, miraculous creature who fastens her solemn black gaze on the boy as if to say, you are what I am, what I yearn to be, so that he plays only for her and not her keepers. And when he is finally free to stare back, applause rippling over the ramparts, even then she does not smile. So the guy, it's Jefferson, yeah, red-headed Jefferson. Um, and, and in fact, it's a little story I'll tell you now about that poem because I, I knew that Thomas Jefferson had been in Paris at that time and he was an amateur violinist. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if he actually had gone to one of George's concerts? But I couldn't find it anywhere. And my husband said, oh, you're a poet, make it up, you know. <laughs> I said, that's not what we do, necessarily. Uh, which is why, you know, I, I decided to call it What Doesn't Happen so that I could do whatever I wanted. But, I had finished the poem, in fact, when one of the, um, the uh, uh, someone who worked at Monticello um, contacted me. Monticello is really practically in my backyard in Virginia. Um, it's, it's very close. Uh, actually had uh, wrote me and said, did you know that, I, I think you'll find this of interest, and I went through a book that she had lent me, and in it, they had all of Thomas Jefferson's notes that he took. He always kept meticulous notes uh, about how much flour he bought or you know, how, all of these kind of housekeeping notes. He also kept a, a note of everything that he did. And he made a note of all of the concerts that he had gone to in Paris and noted what was played. And at one, there was Bridge Tower. So I said, ah. So it actually did happen. Now, Sally Hemings, I don't think she was there, but a different story. Needless to say, Paris got too hot for father and son, and so they skipped across the pond and went to England. Now, you have to imagine that as a musician in that day, you did not have the opportunity to record. There were no iPods or uh, not even, you know, tape decks or anything like that. Um, so you played live, and that meant you had to find your audience. You had to find a patron, someone who would pay for your upkeep while you were busy touring. And uh, the father set his sights on royalty. You might as well start at the top, right? I, he uh, began to, I wouldn't say stalk the Prince of Wales, but he knew where he, knew where he was. <laughs> and the Prince of Wales would come down from London to the seaside because uh, the sea supposedly had curative powers. And he had begun to spend a lot of time in Brighton. And so the, that's where the father went with his son. And in this poem, they're sitting there, and it's a teeny little village at that time. Brighton was just a, a little, you know, kind of dinky sea town. But the father is giving his son a lesson on how to dress for success. The wardrobe lesson. Everyone in this brine-soused village believes an African loves color. So let it be red for our promenade along the stein with a splash of yellow to inflame their watery sensibilities. 
I think it's the sun they so yearn for. Blue saddens this close to the sea, though turquoise is beckoning, and emerald is best a hue entertained only in furnishings. True, we are props of a sort. Let's not forget it. Yet what an aspect will project unleashed among the masses. Against our darker palette, any color thrills. The main thing is fabric and plenty of it. Clouds of silk, waves of damask to be cast off or furled neat to the chest with a certain sly emphasis. You'll learn these sophistications in time. For now it's enough to remember we are here to confound them, these wizened polyps crossing the sands in their creaking bathing machines. So, bright sashes and billowing sleeves, rings on as many fingers as you dare, perhaps a turban or some other headdress to lend majesty without competing. The ladies adore a cape. Different from a cloak, this you can wear inside, where one brisk swirl will conjure a fable of perfumed trysts and moonlit swordplay. As for the embroidered slippers, ungainly as they might seem, the upturned toes do not emasculate. Each step becomes necessarily deliberate and so recalls the boudoir. Don't flinch. It won't do to ignore what waits behind each smile, that unvoiced sigh accompanying your every tremolo. Go ahead. Examine those upturned faces in the concert hall, their tiny gasps and glistening cheeks. I've seen it, boy, even for one young as you. Ah, the ladies are always bored and lonely. You will not need a horse if you have a cape. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. He was a trip. There was, there was really, really, um, uh, once I began digging, there was so much there, which, which makes you wonder about all the songs that have been snuffed um, or buried for now. And I stumbled upon this story by watching a, a movie, Immortal Beloved, which was a biopic about Beethoven. And there is a scene where Beethoven is walking through a group of musicians, and there was one black violinist in this group. And my husband and I looked at each other like, what? <laughs> you know, uh, and that sent me, the curiosity sent me looking. And once I looked, I became really fascinated with this idea of of what it was like to be in London at that time, to be in Europe at that time. One of the things that I discovered was um, once the father and son did go to London, following the prince, of course, and uh, began to start doing concerts in London itself, that music, like everything else, was a class-based system. You could play in the concert halls, and little George, who was 10 at this time, was playing in the concert halls. He was a kind of a novelty. Um, and you could get your music that way. On the far end, on the lower end of the scale, were the street musicians. 
and the street musicians earned their money playing outside of the theaters a lot of the times where people would go in to hear other music. One of the really popular street musicians of the time was a man who called himself Black Billy Waters. And he had a peg leg, he played the fiddle, and he played outside of the Adelphi Theater. And by all accounts was very, very popular. So this is Billy's song. Now, now Black Billy Waters, I, I was trying to, in trying to figure out how to convey this, this guy. I wanted, I thought, there he is playing the same songs over and over again, you know, to, to get a coin here or there. And the form which seemed to really work with that very well was a villanelle. So this is a villanelle, but it's a little bit longer. It's a villanelle gone wild. <laughs> as I'd like to imagine Black Billy Waters was as well. Black Billy Waters at his pitch. Adelphi Theater, 1790s. All men are beggars, white or black. Some worship gold, some pedal brass. My only house is on my back. I play my fiddle, I stay on track. Give my peg leg, thank you sire, a jolly thwack. All men are beggars, white or black. And the plink of coin in my gunny sack is the bittersweet music in a life of lack. My only house is on my back. Was a soldier once, led a failed attack in that greener country for the Union Jack. All men are beggars, white or black. Crippled as a crab, sugary as sassafras. I'm Black Billy Waters, and you can kiss my sweet ass. <laughs> my only house weighs on my back. There he struts like a Turkish crackerjack. London cues for any novelty. And that's a fact. All men are beggars, white or black. And to this bright brown upstart hack among kings, one piece of advice. Don't unpack. All the home you'll own is on your back. I'll dance for the price of a mean cognac, sing gay songs like a natural-born maniac. All men are beggars, white or black. So let's scrape the cat gut clean, stack the cords three deep. See, I'm no quack, though my only house is on my back. All men are beggars, white or black. Thank you. Thank you. There are so many... Um, interconnected stories once you start digging into this one. And, and one of the things that I found remarkable was that Haydn, who, if you remember, taught this young boy when he was five, ends up in London as well. He goes because he's following the, the opportunities to, uh, to get commissions for, for his pieces. And so in a certain way, he is also a slave of sorts. He's a slave to his uh, to those who have the money. He, um, I rarely actually read a poem about Haydn because I, I can get carried away and then I'll read about Haydn and then suddenly it's the prince and we'll be here until the, it's dawn. But I thought I, I'd like to read this one, um, which follows right after the Black Billy Waters. Um, Haydn has come to London to uh, compose some 
pieces. And uh, this is called Haydn Overheard. It is a sad thing always to be a slave. But if slave I must, better the oboe's clarion tyranny than a man's cruel whims. I stayed on at Esther Haza writing music for the world between spats and budgets, with no more leave to step outside the gates than a prize hen, prize egg-laying hen. Even after Miklos died and his tone-deaf son filled the courtyard with military parades, I hesitated. Call it robbing Peter to pay Paul, but I had been homeless once and did not care for hunger. I was content, at times happy. There were commissions sufficient to drown out the prince's baritone and his demand for more and more divertimenti. My proudest thought that Mozart called me friend. My sweetest remembrance, the black servant's child lowering his violin to smile and whisper in time to the music, Papa. The strangest wages arrived from Spain in recompense for seven last words of our Redeemer on the cross, a giant chocolate cake spilling gold coins. But the finest gift I ever received was a vision of Johann Peter Solomon with his flamboyant nose and cape swirling across my doorstep. I've come to fetch you, he said. It was December. We set out from Vienna on the 15th for London, that great free city. The musicians were under that thrall too to always find the next gig. It's not, not much has changed actually. Um, and so their paths do cross again and uh, in the court as a lot of artists pass cross then. The father continued to lobby for concerts for his son and continued to romance the women. And he uh, romanced one too many. And finally, the complaints reached the prince's ear and he banned his father from the country. He simply told him to go away. He paid for the boy and sent the father away and told the, the, the child that now he was going to make sure that he had a, a proper education. So you have a 10-year-old young man in London, foreign tongue, foreign people, no family, but a cushy, cushy job. So here's little George. Uh, the prince says, we're going to get you out of those clothes, those clothes his father had put him into, the undressing. First the sash, peacock blue, silk unfurling round and round until I'm the India ink dotting a cold British eye. Now I can bend to peel off my shoes, try to hook the tasseled tips into the emerald sails of my satin pantaloons. Farewell, sir monkey jacket, monkey red, adieu shirt tart and bright as the lemons the prince once let me touch. Goodbye, lakeside meadow. Goodbye, hummingbird throat. No more games. 
I am to become a proper British gentleman, cuffed and buckled with breeches and a fine cravat. But how? My tossed bed glows while I, I am a smudge, a quenched wick, a twig shrouded in snow. He does become that proper British gentleman. How could he not? Um, and that was the way to survival. And I'm going to jump over a few years, uh, about 10, maybe a little more than that. And by all accounts, he was quite a looker. Uh, he grew up to be quite good looking. There's one unfinished drawing of Bridge Tower, and I concur. He was also a phenomenal violinist. He was the first violinist in the Prince's orchestra, private orchestra, but he wanted more. And he had heard about this madman, Ludwig van Beethoven, who was composing impossible, it's impossibly difficult stuff, and he wanted to go and meet him. And so he got a leave of absence at a young age, in his, in his early 20s, to go to Vienna to seek him out. He also went and visited his mother, we don't know much about this. All we know is that he stopped in Dresden and uh, that his mother had been in Dresden. We don't know much about his mother at all. Uh, women weren't important in that society, and so they just disappeared entirely. But he did stop there, and then he ends up in Vienna to meet Beethoven. And when Beethoven, what he didn't know as he was traveling across Europe, to go to Vienna to meet Beethoven, was that, Be that Beethoven himself was trying to decide if he was going to return to Vienna. He was right outside of Vienna trying to um, find a cure for his deafness. He was beginning to go deaf. And the doctor told him fresh air will do it. And so they sent him to a little village. This deafness, by all accounts, it wasn't like sudden and it was not even creeping. There were good days and bad days. You know, it was like uh, like a bad radio signal you're trying to get in, which must have been hell for a composer. And in this poem, we have Ludwig van Beethoven in this village, uh, just contemplating his return. Ludwig van Beethoven's return to Vienna. Three miles from my adopted city lies a village where I came to peace. The world there was a calm place, even the great Danube no more than a pale ribbon tossed onto the landscape by a girl's careless hand. Into this stillness I had been ordered to recover. The hills were gold with late summer. My rooms were two, plus a small kitchen situated upstairs in the back of a cottage at the end of the Herrengasse. From my window, I could see onto the courtyard where a linden tree twined skyward, leafy umbilicus canted toward light, warped in the very act of yearning, and I would feed on the sun as if that alone would dismantle the silence around me. At first, I raged. Then music raged in me, rising so swiftly I could not write quickly enough to ease the roiling. I would stop to light a lamp, and whatever I'd missed, larks flying to nest, church bells, the shepherd's home toward evening song, 
rushed in and I would rage again. I am by nature a conflagration. I would rather leap than sit and be looked at. So when my proud city spread her gypsy skirts, I re-entered, burning toward her greater, constant light. Call me rough, ill-tempered, slovenly. I tell you, every tenderness I have ever known has been nothing but thwarted violence, an ache so permanent and deep, the lightest touch awakens it. It is impossible to care enough. I have returned with a second symphony and 15 piano variations, which I've named Prometheus, after the rogue titan, the half a god who knew the worst sin is to take what cannot be given back. I smile and bow, and the world is loud. And though I dare not lean in to shout, can't you see that I'm deaf? I also cannot stop listening. We'll return for the rest of the event with Rita Dove in a moment, but first I wanted to share the exciting news that she is returning to Sal on December 3rd, 2021, to talk about her first volume of new poems in 12 years. Playlist for the Apocalypse is Dove's poignant meditation on injustice an investigation of the vacillating moral compass guiding America's experiments in democracy. We couldn't be more excited to welcome her back for this conversation. Tickets for this online-only event are available now at lectures.org. And now, more from Rita Dove. He did stop work on the Third Symphony and wrote this sonata for his new friend. And they did pal around. They actually went out for some beers. It's probably where that girl came in in the story. But before all that happened, there was Beethoven composing this, this incredible sonata, which now we say is classical, but at that time it was very avant-garde. Uh, up to that point, You had a soloist and you had an accompanist. The piano played behind or underneath the, the violin and the violin had the main line. In this one, if you don't know it, listen to the beginning of it sometimes. It's a conversation. The violin starts, the piano answers, and so there's a lot of back and forth at the beginning. It was totally radical uh, at the time. And Beethoven didn't finish it until the night before meaning that Bridgetower sight-read a few parts of this. In fact, uh, at one point, uh, Beethoven told him, well, just, you know, just ad-lib, just, you know, improvise. And he did, and in the concert, uh, Beethoven was accompanying him on the piano, and he leapt up and embraced him, and then they did it again, you know, they did a little encore in the middle, just like jazz musicians. I'll read you a poem. This is taking place on the day of the concert. Uh, the year is 1803, Bridge Tower. I think it's, he's 24 years old, and Beethoven's about 34. This is what their ages were. And the, the concert took place at 7 in the morning, which would not have found me there. 
uh, because I am really a nocturnal person. Uh, but Beethoven finished it about 3 a.m., so they didn't have a lot of sleep either. In this poem, you'll, um, there'll be varying voices because people would come to these concerts. It was an outdoor concert. They came to be seen. Some came to actually listen. Uh, some came to do, you know, to hobnob. And you'll get all of these voices in the poem. Our Garden was the name of the place in Vienna where the concert took place. Our Garden, 7 a.m. Spectator 1. Heavenly, to escape the city's poisons and breathe honey, honey, honey. All praise morning's cathedral, the ranks of noble linden presiding. May we be privileged to pass through their green light and feathered fragrance with tipped hats and mute nods. Amen. The British Ambassador. There goes Chaponzik, huffing up the aisle in his entrepreneurial trappings. Dear God, the man expands weakly. <laughs> ah, the Archduke. And Prince Lopkowitz, poor soul, such an unsightly specimen and feels just as miserable as he looks. I'd have ended it years ago, gone out like a man. Spectator 2. Curious beginning, solo violin reminiscent of Bach but wilder, a supplication, and the piano's reply is almost a lover's, a bird on a cliff returning its true mate's call. Child, he moves around too much. He's like a poplar in the wind. Spectator three, for a savage he plays quite nicely. As for his figure, tall, slim, dare I say, elegant? I'd heard he was a charmer, but never thought chimney soot applied to countenance could be considered handsome. Spectator two. What a furious storm he rides, and Beethoven listing from side to side in accord with the gale, bobbing that rumpled stiltskin head as if to say, well done, my boy, that's it a father to his prodigal son, come home at last. British ambassador. To call this a sonata is obscene. A presto is presto, and adagio, well, slow is meant to stay slow. This Beethoven is as loopy as they say. Imagine insulting the prince when he simply requested a song smashing figurines dashing off in the middle of dinner. Spectator one. I thought that infernal back and forth would never cease. A concert's meant for reverie, to drift away on nature's curative susurrations. Ah, a theme in variations. That's more like it. Child. I like his waistcoat. How can he see out from all that darkness? And then along comes this girl. But we don't know anything about her, not a single thing, except what Bridgetower says many, many years later when someone asks him what happened. And all he will say is that 
I made a saucy remark about a girl. That's all he uh, said about it. We're left to imagine what had happened. I, I tend to think that because he was, he was really quite good looking and we know that Beethoven was not, that, that there was a, the, the rivalry became exacerbated in that sense. But the upshot of it was, was that a mere, really three weeks after this concert, the next time we notice anything in history about Bridge Tower is that he is leaving Vienna and he is on his way back to England. And he lives a very long life. He lives to be 80 years old. He makes a fairly respectable living as far as we can tell. He still played his violin, but he never gets the spotlight again. It is as if you know, this, that, that part of the book closed. So uh, we're, we're left for speculation. Um, by all accounts, the, the rapport between him and Beethoven had been very intense and good, which is probably why the breakup was so intense as well. But he does go and he gets a degree in music so that he can teach, which also hasn't changed much, I think, over the years. He goes to Cambridge. And, and gets this degree so that he can also start giving lessons at some point in his life. Uh, for this concert, I mean, for to get his degree in Cambridge, he had to compose and have some, a concert played in Great St. Mary's Church. So this is that moment. This is many, yeah, many years later, about 10 years later, seven, 10 years later, after meeting Beethoven. Cambridge, Great St. Mary's Church. I kneel, but not in sufferance, not in faith. There is a fulcrum beyond which the bow tip wobbles. No ardency nor forceful wrist can make it sing. I am there at wit's balancing point. Music pours through the blackened nave, hollowing my bones to fit the space it needs. It needs so much of me, the soul's wicked cartridge emptying as fast as it fills. I kneel because even the reed bends before God's laughter splits it, and the storm moves on. Because I read a poem about Haydn at the beginning, let me read you another one on this end of the spectrum. Because at the same time that their paths are crossing all the time, and, and Haydn at this point, it is back in Vienna. He's a very old man. In fact, it's about a month before, he's, before he dies. And another thing that was going on I can't tell you all the things that were going on, but, but another thing that was going on in, in Europe at this time was Napoleon, of course, because we had that French Revolution at the beginning. And Napoleon is, every time I turned around, he was there. <laughs> I guess that's how most people felt. Um, <laughs> and he, at this point, he has actually taken over Vienna. And um, the emperor has fled. And Haydn is far too old to leave. but. Napoleon, because he honors Haydn's music, has decided to put a guard up around his house, which Haydn just simply abhors. And what this old man does is that every day he would get up, get dressed, because he always got dressed, and would make it, because he wasn't moving very well at that point, but he would make it over to the 
piano, which was next to the window, and he would play this song that he had composed, which became the, the, real, the anthem for the Viennese. So he would play this very loudly every morning for the honor guard, and then he would, you know, go back. So this is Haydn Serenades the Napoleonic Honor Guard. When I was a boy, I snipped off a choir mate's pigtail just to see if the scissors were sharp. I was caned, then expelled. I had no prospects. My voice had cracked. The streets were cold and lacked music. And now you have arrayed yourself into a thorny hedge around my home. You have been placed in the streets by a pugnacious little man who has learned to stomp his foot until the continent quakes. I am weary of his chronic percussion. My emperor has fled. Across the city, rooftops are breaking out with fl white flags like pustules blotching a beloved face. I have never been good looking, but have always dressed carefully. Now that I am old, your leader wants to keep me safe. Spare me your crude fanfare, honor guard. I have starved in these streets with nothing but a splintered voice and the angels inside my head, found paradise while dozing before the sparse embers in an old friend's only grate, the warm milk thick on my tongue. Even now it is the grandest taste I have known. In the end, it was good to have no influences. Every day now, for as many days as are given me, I will rise and dress and go to the clavier to play my folk song, my final oratorio, so those who need to will hear. Admit it, toy soldiers, in your fine blue and gold trappings, your white-strapped chests. Even your ears are humming. Even your red plumes shake. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm skipping quite a few years now. I'll just leap right over them. Um, and I'll take you near the end of, of Bridge Tower's life. He, as I said, he lived to be 80 years old. He lived into Victorian England. He died in 1860 in subsidized housing. Uh, on the south side of the river in London, which was not a trendy place to be in 1860. Not like it is today. I found his, uh, the death certificate, which had been signed by a neighbor, or let's say the neighbor who was illiterate had put an X there. Um, one of his, someone else in subsidized housing. So I'm going to end with uh, one last poem by Bridge Tower's voice and then the uh, neighbor and then a final poem. So three more poems. This is Bridge Tower on his deathbed, number eight, Victory Cottages, Peckham, 1860. Not true what the living claim we regret in the last hour. No memories worth blubbering through, nor scrabbling for favor in the eyes of our children, nor honor sought among friends. 
Drool travels unnoticed from collar to pillar, pillow, while suspended by blankets, a thigh dangles, blameless and bare. Shame has lost its sting in this penultimate hell. These next to last days when we're still ourselves. I don't need wine or gossip or weather. I don't give a fig for warm socks or don't laugh the summer's first pear, a fruit I haven't been able to digest for 20 years and have mourned for as long. What's any of it compared to this draining of humors, this wondrous uncaring? Pain is an interference. Love is cumbersome. For I loved only what my fingers could do, and even they did not serve me forever. The Witness. Yeah, that's him, Bridge Tower. Didn't know his given name. George, eh, like the king. Fancy, fancy for that sour pint of breath he was wheezing. Half blood and all, though, I didn't mind him. Dusty a bit. I couldn't help brushing my sleeve after greeting, afraid he'd sprinkle some of that brown my way. Sorry, it ain't right to make fun of the fresh dead, newly, no, I mean to say late, departed, you know, them that's just cooling. So he was a fiddler, something of a stunner in his day. Days done, gone the sun. Ain't that a German song? Heard it somewhere. Kind of mournful. Wonder could he play that? And I'll end with uh, the, the last poem in the book, which uh, really was a tribute to my husband and my daughter who went with me to London on one of the, my last trips there and patiently held maps and, 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 and cameras and everything as I, as I walked around. What I was, I wasn't looking for much. I really just wanted to walk the London that Bridge Tower had walked, which is a much smaller London. But I also wanted, the other thing I wanted to do was I really wanted to find that house, at least the site of that subsidized housing where he had lived. And, uh, and had died his final days, knowing, of course, that it was not going to be as it was, but, but, but needing to go there. There's one reference in this poem that you may not, uh, well, two, actually, I'll give you. One of them is Victory Cottages, which is the name those cottages were given at the time. And the other is Janissary. And the Janissary, the Janissary bands were actually bands of Africans who got stranded in England uh, because of good old slavery and, and ended up um, entertaining by marching down the streets in, in very, very vibrant colors like that father those many years before that. And, uh, you know, gathering money because people would toss them coins and stuff. So they called themselves the Janissary Band. The End with MapQuest. Will I cry for you, Paul Green? 
Will I drag out your end though it is long past, though I drove slowly past the place of your dying days and recorded what I knew I'd find there? Families in townhouses, a sensible Vauxhall parked askew in the carport behind the green grate. Will I tell you, whispering to no one in particular, how even the street sign seemed greasy and that it was raining, Natch, and whenever I tried to focus on the thought of you laid out in one of those miserable victory cottages, no turrets, no gilded palms, no jiggling regents, I had to do something, crack a joke, or snap another useless photo of the Bellington Primary School. But when we turned left to round the block for the fifth time, it was the perfectly dismal sight of a fast food joint on the corner, Sam's Kebabs, which cheered me. Would you understand? The red and yellow neon script shouting like a Janissary band, so tacky it was buoyant, colorful because there was no good reason to be afraid of shouting with the whole world determined not to hear you, though they tried to shut you up all the time. Do I care enough, George Augustus Bridgetower, to miss you? I don't even know if I really like you. I don't know if your playing was truly gorgeous or if it was just you, the sheer miracle of all that darkness swaying close enough to touch palm tree and sambo and glistening tiger running circles into golden oil. Ah, Master B, little great man, tell me, how does a shadow shine? Thank you. So research obviously played a big role in this book. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about how you balanced research and writing and if research has always been a bit of part of your process? You know, I, I really don't think of research as, as, as something arduous or as mm -hmm. research, I guess one would say. Mm -hmm. But I really think of it as, as curiosity, just something that keeps, mm -hmm. keeps me going. And when I first you know, stumbled upon George Bridgetower's story. I actually did not think that I was going to write poems. I didn't immediately think, oh, you know, let's, let's write mm -hmm. some poems. I just wanted to know more about him. And in fact, I thought the story was, uh, could be a good film. You know, I didn't think mm -hmm. it was gonna, I was gonna write poems about it. But as I began to try to find more and more about this guy, you know, and, and there was so little, and thank God for the internet, and, and you know, which <laughs> led me to other places, and then I could get to the, to the right libraries. It became so rich, and I began, I began to write to be able to understand it myself. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of actually writing and actually mm -hmm. doing the research, how it balanced out, I tended to, to read and read and do a lot of research and not write a single word and, until it was about to, to burst out. And then I put the research away and didn't look at it and wrote. Um, didn't care about dates, didn't care about anything like that. Then I would go back and do more research and make sure that things were, I tried not to get mm -hmm. too tied up on dates and all of that mm -hmm. kind of stuff because I didn't want it to be just another 
Oh, this is going to sound so bad. I didn't want it to be, you know, like a, a, another a BBC production. You know, I mean, it, there, there's a space for that, mm -hmm. but I didn't have the props. So, um, I wanted them, him to come alive. And, and the more I read, the more I realized that it wasn't just looking back on this historical character and oh, isn't that so interesting? This is a living, breathing person who was every bit as hip and and strange and you know radical and avant-garde at his time. Mm -hmm. All of them were actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, Beethoven was insane. I mean, the man was you know he was he was totally unacceptable in public. I mean, the, but um, and yet we think of him as this little bus on the piano. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I wanted to get at that, and that meant mm -hmm. getting the research out of my head when right. I wrote. It does seem like it would make a good film. Has Hollywood called yet? Are you listening? Yeah. No. Uh, actually, uh, no. Well, there have been a couple of nibbles and, and um, a, a wonderful production company in, uh, in Baltimore are there going to do a documentary. So, uh, or at least we're working toward that, but that also means you're getting funding and back and forth and all that, which I think it'll, it'll be a creative documentary in the sense that it won't just be a telling of his life, but it'll be, it'll have some creative moments. And so that's in the very early stages. But I think it would make a fabulous movie. Yeah. Well, it might be the first uh, book of poetry ever to be optioned. Wouldn't it be cool? <laughs> <laughs> um, I read that um, when you came across Bridge Tower in the film and Googled him, you realized that you actually had heard the story long before, but you said that you had passed it by because you had, weren't ready for it yet. Um, in what ways were you not ready, and how did you become ready? I grew up playing the cello. I started playing when I was 10, and, uh, and so classical music was always part mm -hmm. of my life, and I loved doing um, string quartet, okay. small ensemble work, because it is so much like jazz. It really is. I mean, you have to listen to each other. And, and so anyway, I, I love doing that. So in the course of, 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 all, of all of that classical music, I had run across this story, but I had, and I say I wasn't ready for it, it, it was long before I had had my chops as a poet. Mm -hmm. It was not anything that I could think of in that way. And so as a consequence, it was just, just, I, should, I shouldn't say just, but in the world, uh, just one more story of someone who disappeared. Mm -hmm. When I saw the movie, and it, it, it kind of hit me anew, and then I began research, I said, but I, oh yes, there are many other, there are many other um, prodigy African classical musicians who came up mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. Just his story was one that I had never really gone into. Mm -hmm. um, you noted um, at a conference, and you sort of referenced tonight, that the, this is a very male book. It's yeah. relentlessly male, you, you said. Um, <laughs> what, was that challenging for you? And, and was, did you have an impulse to make it less male or to try to weave women into the story? Oh, gosh, it was, it was sometimes. I, oh. <laughs> I, it was very hard because uh, uh, there were two things that really frightened me a lot at the beginning. And one of them was the fact that the Beethoven was sitting there like Beethoven. And I realized fairly early on that I would have to speak in Beethoven's voice. Could I presume to be Beethoven? 
once you got over, you know, presuming to be Beethoven, <laughs> after that, everything else is a piece uh -huh. of cake. Um, and what I realized that, you know, to presume to speak in anybody's voice, as long as you're doing it out of love, as long as you're doing it out of uh, this feeling of wanting to, to sing their song, mm -hmm. um, then, then it's perfectly fine. You're going to be hopefully true and honest to it. That was the one thing. But so the male part, I, I would check every once in a while with my husband, with other male friends, to see if I was getting it right, particularly the seduction scenes, which was kind of, you know, it was kind of fun, actually. Um, there were times when I would just kind of explode, boil over, and I'd <laughs> stomp out and say to Fred, oh, you guys are just pigs or something. <laughs> and then I would stomp, and he was smart enough to just let me rant, let me go back in there and then be a male again. I could not, I could not in any kind of honest sense make that book more, less male. Mm -hmm. It would not have been true to what was happening. It wasn't, it was just that women just weren't regarded. They just, mm -hmm. yeah, it wasn't even something aggressively anti-feminine. Mm -hmm. they, they just didn't count. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted desperately to find more about his mother. And uh, the more I looked, the more I realized that it wasn't there, it was only there in, in, in some of the most heartbreaking kind of details, like the Prince of Wales had, did send some money they found in his accounts that he had sent a certain amount of money every um, month to Dresden, to a, mm. and then it stopped in the year, so that's how I knew when she had died. Mm. But that was the, not even her name, it's pretty wild. Uh, speaking of your, your poor husband, uh, I know I read that you were something of a hermit while writing this book, um, and really were only, only talking to your, your family members, um, and that you also refrained from sending the poems out for publication, um, that you really, you, you held the book back, and you also just sort of went into this intense kind of writing period. Mm -hmm. um, why, why this book? Why did you need that sort of intensity and also privacy around the poems? I've never done that before with a book, I mean, or with, with, with poems. I've, I've always believed, felt strongly that poetry was a living, and it is, a living and a breathing thing, and I wanted to be in the world while I was writing it, obviously. It was a part of my life. But this book was different for several reasons. One of them was, the major reason is that it was taking place in another era. And uh, the baseline of English, I guess, was different, let's put it that way. I did not want it to sound like uh, actors speaking, you know, poor British accents, you know, or anything. Mm -hmm. I didn't want it to become that. I wanted, but I needed to, to create, in a certain way, a new English, which was slightly formal, but still had something contemporary in it. Mm -hmm. And I could not figure out how to do that and still talk to other people, I mm -hmm. guess. But there was another reason, and that was that I, it's very, it's hard to know if something is really working or not. Uh, when, this is going to sound kind of odd or indelicate, but I had people asking me to submit poems from magazines or just they'd print anything, and I said, well, how can I tell if it's any good mm -hmm. if you're just going to take it because I'm Read a dove, mm -hmm. uh, and so I, and I got tired of hearing my own voice. I got tired of hearing mm -hmm. my own voice in interviews. I got tired of hearing everything popping back, and and so 
I had a sabbatical and I decided that, well actually, I began preparing for it even before the sabbatical. I stopped accepting reading engagements, so I didn't read for about a year. And I, uh, I didn't give readings, I should say, for about a year. I read books. But, uh, <laughs> and, and then, and I also didn't send any of the poems out because, and I also, because it was, it was also very delicate, I didn't, I was writing, sometimes I would write a poem about where Beethoven was in it, and then it would be one of the children's poems, and then Napoleon would come in. And so I was going all over the, mm -hmm. the, the 80 year span, and I wasn't sure it was going to come together. I really wasn't, mm -hmm. so I didn't want to send something out and either have it, you know, not find an audience and be totally discouraged, or um, have it find an audience and wonder if it was really true. Right. So I just decided to go cold turkey. Right. <laughs> Um, this relates to a question I was wondering, maybe you could speak more about that. I mean, you're obviously uh, a masterful poet with, you know, with many, many books. Yet I imagine, I mean, that as, as we all do, that you, you still have to work on it, that there are still particular um, challenges as a poet or, or, or techniques or um, parts of your poetry that you're still working on. Could you oh, say yeah. more about what some of those challenges are, the, the things that you work on? Um, I work on it all, every day. You know, gee, I think that if, if it were coming easy, I must be doing something wrong. <laughs> that I, then, then I would be bored. Mm -hmm. Every single poem that I finish, or at least give out of my study, you know, free, mm -hmm. has terrified me utterly when I started to write it. Mm. Every single poem, I feel like, I don't know what I'm doing, or I mean, I, gosh, you know, this is really weird, or really wild, or, or is it going to be something? And, and I, I think that because I, I want to always be pushing that mm. envelope and always be trying something new. I love revision. Maybe I'm a masochist, but I, I do. I mean, that's the phase where things really start to happen. And it's not unusual for a poem to go through. I don't even count. Mm -hmm. but, but because this book was so big and, and I had to start keeping some kind of system, I actually did, uh, I numbered all the drafts so I wouldn't get lost. And then we go up to 30, 40, 50, you know, just, that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, no, you work at it, you work at it. And you, I guess it's like musicians, mm -hmm. too, that uh, you know you do you do your scales and you keep you keep working at it. Well, let's turn to what you look for in other people's poetry. I know you're editing the Penguin Book of Twentieth Century American Poetry. But what has been your approach to this gigantic task? It's so big. Um, <laughs> and I'm still struggling. The question is, in any kind of anthology, is to try to, this particular one that has a, a set time period, and this one is the 20th century American poetry, mm -hmm. is to try to get a, an overview, a sense of, of how the different schools influence one another, and, and, and because you can't, obviously you cannot include everybody, mm -hmm. even really, really worthy people, if you're trying to do hundred years worth of poetry. So that's, that's one of the, the hardest things that's been just trying mm -hmm. to decide how to approach it, how to approach mm -hmm. it. Not a strictly chronological 
something necessarily. Um, and that's something, though there is a chronological element into it, I just didn't want to go by birth date, okay? This person comes for that person. But, but more toward, toward schools and then the people kind of jut out, you know, get away mm -hmm. from the schools. Because, uh, it, it, and it's, it's been really, really hard. It's been so hard making decisions, you know, who's not going to be and who's, mm -hmm. who isn't. And also to figure out um, the relative weight of people. Mm -hmm. How many poems does William Carlos Williams get as opposed to? <laughs> um, it's, uh, but, but it's, I agreed to do it in one of those moments when I, you know, thought I, it would be really good for me. It would be good for <laughs> to really start to think about, mm -hmm. about how, about how American poetry has been shaped. And it's, mm -hmm. and it's shaped slightly differently from when I started reading poetry in, in, um, the 60s, I guess, the late 60s. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's shaped up a lot differently, the 20th century. So my, I approached it actually at the beginning the same way that I approached the Sonata Melodica and the same way that I approach any poem, which is just to dive in without any consequence, of, without thinking about chronology or paths, just what poems immediately that I love. Mm -hmm. And then how did that person get to that point in their life? Who influenced them? So I had this mass of stuff. It was just far too much, you know. Um, and then I began to look at it all. And when I do that, I put it all over the floor and I walk around uh, looking at where currents were mm -hmm. and trying to be very careful that I don't allow um, the poems that were necessarily my favorites you know, when mm -hmm. I was growing up, that I don't let that over, the cloud over other things. Mm -hmm. In other words, you look for the fresh and the different, and um, I don't know. It's shaping up very, very, I think the Penguin people have been remarkable. They've been really wonderful. They, they let me do this strange way of putting it together, mm -hmm. you know, and not, not giving them the, the master list right away, but give them little pieces of, well, here's a little clump, and here's a little clump over here. <laughs> They've been great, though. Do we have a publication date yet? Mm, we have several. Which one mm. do you want? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're actually, we're, we're shooting for next, for fall of 2011. Okay. So that means I better get it in by this fall. Okay. Uh, well, speaking of uh, reading in, in your early reading life, I know that the public library played a huge role yeah. in your youth and in the development of your love of poetry. Um, you would just browse along the shelves finding books that appealed. And mm -hmm. Do you think the library um, is becoming or has become endangered? Yes, I think it is becoming endangered. And I don't know how that's going to play out um, in, in the way that, that, actually in the way that we think, we're actually the way that we organize our thoughts. What, what really helped me when I was growing up, when I was allowed to browse at libraries, that I could wander physically into a space and bump into an area that would have intimidated me, but since I was there in person, I could pull off a book, a chemistry book, you know, kind of look and say, oh, it looks kind of cool. Put it back, and then you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. and go. Whereas you don't browse the 
the same way if you're using the internet, if you're mm -hmm. downloading something, you mm -hmm. do not bump into things in the same way. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's gonna change the way we think, frankly. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, I, I can see it even now in my students in the way that they look for things. And I'm thinking, but you're not, you're not looking around, you're, you're going, yeah, the line may meander, but it is a straight line. Mm -hmm. That's just curved. Not, it's not 360. So I, I worry. I, I really, truly do worry. What I find wonderful about the libraries now is that they are able to have uh, a, an, enough of a, a, a computer sensibility in the libraries that, that kids can actually learn to search the internet. You can find. I mean, I use. I use the internet all the time, mm -hmm. uh, but I, it's nothing like a book, and I'm an old-fashioned girl. I just, mm -hmm. give me a book, <laughs> give me a book. We'll end with this question. Could you tell us about your favorite dance? Whoa, <laughs> my favorite if dance. If you can pick just one, Gosh, or two. I, you know, actually, I can't pick just one dance, and, and I'll, I'll preface it by saying that I, you know, I always grew up with music, all kinds of music, and it wasn't just classical. There was all sorts, and I was in a jazz thing, band when I was in, in um, uh, high school. But in terms of doing ballroom dancing, which my husband and I do, um, at first my favorites were all the Latin dances, mm -hmm. particularly samba and cha-cha, um, sometimes rampa. Yeah, sometimes remember. But, and then, and, and, and I thought oh, the other ones, Waltz and Foxtrot, that was, you know, just too square. <laughs> but they're pretty fabulous, too. They're pretty fabulous, too. And now, it just it depends on my mood. And that's what's so wonderful about, about any kind of art form, actually, but I'll, I'll couch it in the metaphor of dance. What's wonderful about the ballroom dances is that you can find as much freedom in a foxtrot as you can find in, in a cha-cha, as long as you know how to do the basic steps, as long as you, you know, practice your scales. Um, then, then there's all sorts of freedom. You can stretch the line, and, and you don't have to have a favorite. It depends on your mood, just like you don't have to have a favorite kind of poem. Mm -hmm. or favorite kind of literature. It depends on your mood, and that's, that's the beauty of it, really. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. It was such an honor to host Rita Dove in 2010 and to bring her back to the podcast today. Thank you to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board, and community, and thanks to all of you for listening. This show would not be possible without you. Our show is produced by Jackstraw Cultural Center with theme music by Daniel Spills. To hear more, subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, rate and review us five stars so that more people can enjoy Sal on Air.